we, we really needed to make sure that the basics are being fulfilled. So, I mean, everyone that lived in a hot zone, which, which, which we determined it, or uh, areas or, different, or certain suburbs that were far more risky than uh, others, uh, we made sure that they, uh, they got relocated with their families. We uh, made sure that they were like, we, uh, that they lived in much safer, you know, areas. Uh, then again, like, you know, this was uh, Syria, it's not Norway. Uh, there is, you know, a risk of, uh, almost at the everywhere, but there are areas which uh, became much more riskier than uh, others. You are listening to the Underdog Way podcast with me, Ruben Pillai, where I interview amazing guests who face adversity, overcome challenges, and found their purpose. We share stories to inspire change. Remember, your change will begin when you turn inspiration into action. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Stop Holding Back Foundation, a charity really close to my heart that is focused on the personal development of people who stutter. A big shout out to everyone part of the SHB family. I love you all and thank you for the support. Hello again and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, as always, for supporting the work I do. Today's guest is Louie Al-Romani, who held the position of Head of Finance and Planning at BBSF, Syria's largest private bank. During the midst of the Syrian crisis, where ISIS were dominating world news on a daily basis. Whilst we were painted a narrative on this side of the world, Louie tells a different story from his perspective as head of finance for BBSF and he put these lessons into an incredible book called Lessons from a War Zone where he explains business principles from the perspective of this amazing story that he shares. Louis kindly agreed to come on this podcast and share his insights and he has since been featured on many news channels and articles which you can look up online. The book's incredible and I learned a lot from this conversation and I thank him very much for giving me his time. If there's one key thing that I learned, it is to pursue opportunities relentlessly and be strategic. And for that, I thank you very much, Louie. Thanks for listening on and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks a lot, uh, Ruben. Such a pleasure to be here uh, talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. In terms of like the structure of the conversation, I thought it, it would be good to split it into two parts. So, so um, the first part that could be just your background and of how things were prior to the war. And then uh, the second part, we can talk about the experiences at the time of the war and then delve into a few of the points in the book uh, let me go back around 10 
years ago, 2010, I had just uh, returned from uh, Boston where I had lived and done my uh, MBA. And prospects in Syria were looking really good back. back uh, at the time, GDP was uh, growing. The country was poised for a Dubai-like uh, renaissance. So, so I had worked before my, my MBA in that same bank. And, I, and, and although I got uh, offers uh, to work elsewhere in the Gulf, I really wanted to go back to Damascus, like uh, uh, just uh, like I was uh, saying uh, earlier, prospects were really good, and really the country was poised for 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 a period of prosperity. So I went back end of uh, 2010, and I rejoined the bank, and I was uh, the head of finance and planning there. And just a couple of months uh, before the unrest had began, there was a major financial uh, hub being uh, built near the capital, and the purpose was to Created like a new financial downtown uh, city, and I think uh, at the bank we had probably bought the most expensive building in the country at the time. We we bought a building for around 25 million dollars, and the idea was that we would be moving our head uh, the offices there in a few months. And my biggest worry at the time was whether I would get a very nice looking corner office or not. But a couple of months later. The unrest really came out of nowhere. I mean, uh, we had uh, we had seen it, you know, erupting in neighboring countries, uh, Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya, but uh, for some uh, uh, reason we did not really expect it to happen where we were. And I re remember there was uh, we had a French CEO, and he gathered some of his Syrian aides, and he like you know asked us a very basic uh, question that any outsider would would ask i mean do you think this uh, would happen here and we we all uh, assuredly said no there was uh, no way this is uh, going to happen here and he said why not like i mean it just seems logical that you know things will will uh, erupt here but i guess sometimes when you're too immersed and there are there are certain uh, things which you tend to uh, miss out i mean anyway things did uh, erupt and uh, eventually you know the crisis grew from you know, being just sporadic, you know, unrest uh, here and there in uh, different parts of uh, the country to, to a fully-fledged war, which many scholars uh, agree is one of the most horrendous wars in modern uh, times. So, so really, this was, a, you know, a crisis that was slowly unfolding. It wasn't, you know, a jump from an absolute world of order to an absolute world of uh, mayhem. It was an you know, eventual worsening and we found ourselves in the bank having to uh, operate the largest bank in uh, the country in these very difficult uh, times so so we were working in uh, the a crisis sort of became our default state of operations usually a crisis is linked to to a certain entity it's not systemic in the sense uh, that it you know affects uh, the everyone and uh, usually it's a bit time confined so whether whether it's a, i don't know a pr scandal or something relating to an to like uh, to an entity it would just take place for for a certain period you know of time then uh, it ends but you know ours uh, was really a different uh, case it was you know evolving it was uh, worsening and there was no way we could really assess the, the the timeline of things so this is really in a nutshell, just you know, giving you some background a couple of months uh, before it all began. Because some people think like the Middle East, you know, is this one homogeneous entity where there's war all over the place. It is a turbulent region. 
in most of uh, the cases. But I mean, Syria really before uh, the war was was very peaceful uh, country. Things were looking really good, uh, and it's not like we were used to you know operating in such you know difficult, challenging times, ridden by war. That's a big shift then, because did you feel like that you had the skills and the attributes to maybe cope with that shift in the landscape of the country? Because prior to the uprising and, and the war, I guess the mindset of by yourself, uh, the other board members and the rest of the bank, it will be completely different. And then the war starts and but the landscape changes. Individually, I I wouldn't say that you know I had you know the, um, like you know the well the, the way the way I see it is that I believe that you know every one of us has a capacity to grow their resilience, but I mean they need triggers for it and for uh, a resilience to grow like like even uh, people that live in much uh, safer countries such as Sweden and the UK. Maybe if when when people compare themselves uh, today uh, vis-a-vis seven uh, months ago, before COVID-19, they would they would see probably themselves as much like you know stronger now and much more adaptable, much more resilient. So so I do believe that uh, resilience is really something that's embedded within you know everyone. But you know when uh, uh, when it's not tested, when it's not triggered, you know it doesn't really take to sort of flesh out. So for me, uh, my led a fairly comfortable life so 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 i wouldn't say that you know i was tested prior to the war to the extent that the war really required the resilience too i mean like you know this was this was really tough uh, at times like i had you know i, I was uh, working in a bank and uh, one day a rocket re- uh, actually hit the the the, the building that i was uh, working in uh, we had to manage uh, cases where many of our branches were being rampaged there were we had lots of staff whose life was in danger. So yes, I mean I can say that I might have had some bit of resilience before, but not enough to to like you know face the terrible things that we were facing. So I mean to answer your question and just you know a few words that I don't think any of us had what it took initially to face this crisis. It was really a learning curve. But I mean, with time, we, we, we became a lot better. And I think time can be the, the, the best te- teacher of things. Like uh, people sometimes uh, ask me if I went through a certain uh, training and I didn't. It was really, you know, uh, on the job training, learning, you know, out of necessity. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Um, at the start of the war, did yourself and the rest of the board expect this to be like a short-term war? or did you expect it to extend over a longer period of time? Because of the length of the war affects a planning um, and a budgeting, a stress testing, and all yeah, these sorts of things. Of yeah. So generally, uh, I feel that you know people tend to be a bit optimistic at the start. So generally, our feeling was that you know I mean this this would not last very long. You know, uh, similar to how people initially during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic thought that, you know, this uh, this thing will be over in uh, three months and that's it. But uh, but I mean, with time, you sort of get uh, like you know, I mean, accustomed to the way things are. So so I think we had a similar perspective initially. Then we were doing something wrong. We were 
you know, asking lots of questions on things which we had no control on. So, so, so in the meeting rooms, we would sit and, you know, talk about how the, the, the war will be unfolding, when will it end, will uh, the U.S. Uh, interfere, uh, you know, I mean, uh, questions on the things which we didn't uh, really know. And by the way, nine years uh, later, I mean, the war, the war is not uh, over yet. And the same questions we had nine and a half years ago, there's still uh, no answer to uh, almost all of them. With time, we learned that this was really a flawed approach at really formulating our strategy. You know, focusing on, on things which, which we couldn't control, I mean, doesn't really help much. Like, you know, you, uh, you would just uh, get into a myriad of uh, questions and answers and just, you know, debating different uh, scenarios, but no real, no real uh, impact. So uh, with time, we learned to, uh, to ask different kinds of questions revolving around things which we did have control on. So rather than ask questions on how the war would be evolving, we started to ask questions on, let's say, what is the bank's critical success factors, i.e. the set of things that you know the bank should be doing well, and how is this being affected by what's going on? We realized that, you know, I mean, even the worst war in modern times doesn't necessarily change the dynamics of an industry. So we were a bank and we realized that there were three things that we always needed to get right. Trust, people need to trust the bank, whether there's a, there's a war or not, and maybe more so during a war. And the timeline of the war really becomes less relevant. So, I mean, whether the war lasts for one year, five years, or even a hundred years, as a bank, people still need to, to, to trust you. The war doesn't change that. To have really good liquidity levels, I mean, we're a bank, we're in the, we're in the business of money, of lending. So if we lack liquidity, this would definitely cripple our banking capabilities. And the third and last thing was the, the ability to be able to lend at a competitive rate. You know, again, we're, uh, we're a bank. No matter what happens, we make most of our money by lending. Therefore, this was a critical success factor that we needed to get right no matter what. So really by focusing on these three things and making sure that no matter what, we were, we were always uh, trying to fulfill them, we, we really maximized uh, uh, our chances of making it work out no matter what uh, actually happened in the uh, context. So, so again, we could not read the future, but what we could do is identify the critical success uh, factors and make sure that our actions are continuously and almost ruthlessly trying to fulfill them. Because I imagine that stabilization of the currency was tricky. Yeah. And then like alongside um, the sanctions from the countries in um, the global markets. If you find yourself um, as a bank stranded without the external support. So the risk is always, you had an entity with the Syrian nexus, there was a risk of a terrorist financing. Yeah, so just to uh, clarify that, yes, I mean, there were many government entities that were sanctioned, but we as a private bank were not sanctioned. Uh, we did have uh, access to global markets we were dealing with of course, upon the banks all over the world. Now, uh, of course, some were very worried of 
of dealing with you know NCs inside Syria. So some just uh, stopped working all together with with uh, any bank inside of uh, Syria. But but uh, but I mean there was that um, you know interaction with with, with global uh, markets. Uh, of course, I mean we had to up our game when it came to to, to compliance, and when and we grew the team a lot, and you know I mean we made sure. You know, again, we were, you know, a bank. Uh, we were in a tricky situation and working in a, you know, country with, with many, like, I mean, just like you're saying, potentials for, for, uh, for different kind of financing, which, which I mean, could, uh, which would be a bad type of financing. So we made sure that, you know, that this was an area which we greatly scrutinized and, and I made sure that. Uh, we, we uh, provided the uh, required tools to the to the compliance and the other uh, kind of scrutiny uh, teams. With regards to um, the rest of the bank and the employees, um, do you find it a challenge um, to maintain the um, spirits and the devil work ethic? Because yeah. in the in the midst of a war, you can see that worries and stresses of mm. of the people and they're probably thinking about their families etc yeah the risk of actually being at work at the time there's a danger there did you find a struggle to maintain the um spirits then yeah yeah i mean uh, of course it was a very uh, it was a main challenge uh, for us and the like you know i think the early on uh, it really I mean, it was really, uh, you know, evident that I mean, we we could not really talk talk about mental uh, well-being and you know, secondary uh, issues where where many many of our uh, people were like, you know, facing uh, somehow existential threats and like, you know, I mean, uh, risks that 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 really were were fundamental to their well-being. So 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 I mean, early on, we we knew that that uh, that I mean, we we really made sure. We, we really needed to make sure that the basics are being fulfilled. So, I mean, everyone that lived in a hot zone, which which, which we determined it, or uh, areas or different or certain suburbs that were far more risky than uh, others, uh, we made sure that they uh, they got relocated with their families. We uh, made sure that they were like, we, uh, that they lived in much safer, you know, areas. Uh, then again, like, you know, this was uh, Syria, it's not Norway. Uh, there is, you know, a risk of, uh, almost uh, everywhere, but there are areas which uh, became much more riskier than uh, others. So, so I mean, getting the the, the essentials uh, right, you know, making sure that we're safeguarding the uh, actual physical well-being of our staff uh, and their families first, first and foremost, that really was, I mean, the found the the the, the cornerstone behind anything else which uh, we did. So, so once we got that right, uh, made sure that uh, everyone. Is really living as 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 well as uh, as possible in that uh, country in that context. We we started focusing on other things. One one important thing. So uh, I have a chapter called "Cut Costs uh, But Don't Slash Morale" in chapter I think uh, seven. It uh, becomes very tempting to cut uh, costs and start you know slashing the really big numbers uh, because because it doesn't really take. You know, uh, someone very financially uh, uh, capable to just uh, look look at the books, uh, look at the costs, really see these big big chunks of you know staff-related uh, costs, and it's really the 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 easiest thing uh, to do. I mean, I don't think there's a big uh, victory in like you know 
uh, abruptly, you know, slashing her costs. It is an, an uh, easy thing to do. Uh, it will lead to, to you know, significant cost uh, savings in uh, in many uh, cases. But 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 I mean, we d we did not take this as uh, easy route. We we knew that you know, uh, cutting uh, costs would maybe fulfill certain metrics, uh, certain uh, targets, you know, in the short run. But uh, but in the long run, it would definitely erode our capabilities. So so. So I mean, uh, uh, staff might have thought that you know initially we were we were tempted to do so because many many uh, many other banks and entities did that. You know they they knew that you know if we had done that maybe we would be doing things right. But but we decided that uh, sometimes it's not about doing things right. It's it's about doing the right thing. For us, uh, doing the right thing was to to make sure that we upheld and maintain staff uh, morale uh, and not let petty savings of a buck here and there get in the way of that. So, so I mean, when, when our bankers in the city of Aleppo were being besieged, we, we actually introduced online e-learning tools uh, to, to them and then uh, such a way that a banker in Aleppo would get exposed to, to the same training courses as a banker in, let's say, Geneva or London would get. So, so, so I mean, we did, we did not even let a siege of a big uh, city get in the way of us providing the the needed services and tools uh, to them. When there were, there was a time there were, there was a fuel shortage in the, the country, and uh, people had to pay around a quarter of their uh, salaries just to come out to work. We rented out the buses, and 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 made sure that you know all of our staff had the chance to to get into these buses, and not just that. We, we even let the staff of competitor banks nearby use the buses when, when, when it was allowed to do so. So, I mean, you know, all these small things really help build more motivation. And, uh, and it's really uh, about taking uh, actions rather than just being re reassuring verbally. Because now we see lots of entities, you know, going, making very, you know, re reassuring press uh, releases, a lot of signaling. A lot of uh, talks, but less actions on the ground. Because of the change in the environment, would that encourage you to think outside the box and increase the value that you gave to the rest of the workforce in the bank? Mm -hmm. There was a great point in uh, the book where uh, you spoke about uh, the risk of clients that are afraid of their money in the bank and the safety of the money you came up with the idea of taking a display of the stacks of cash um, out of the window of the bank and showed to the people that you had cash available and had money was safe with you did you feel like it was a risk at that time for theft or worse maybe just some uh, background for the viewers and listeners. So, so I mean, initially when the, the crisis began, you know, Syria was a very cash-based society. So, people used cash a lot, and and there was a fear over money, over currency devaluation. So, lots of people started going to banks and wanting to withdraw their money. And uh, usually, a queue is a is a good thing for a business, but it's a nightmare for banks. So, not a good thing when when you're a banker and you see queues lining up you know outside the building in the early morning uh, hours most uh, banks really took techniques to 
to delay with the withdrawal. So let's say you came in, you wanted to uh, withdraw a thousand. You know, I, I would convince you that you know there's no need to get you know a thousand. Get a hundred now, a hundred tomorrow, or maybe I'll just you know make it part of my policies that I mean you are not allowed any longer to withdraw a thousand. It's just you know a maximum of a hundred a day. We really, I mean, uh, we were not behavioral scientists, but uh, we did take a, a gamble. We thought that, you know, I mean, people are panicking and we really could not, you know, accommodate, you know, I mean, you know, make them not uh, panic. Like, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, think, uh, think about it this way. If, if someone tells you to, uh, to relax and you're not in a relaxed mood, just, just by telling you to relax doesn't really help you to, to relax. In my uh, case, actually, it would make me less... Uh, relax. So, so I mean, people were gonna panic, and it's they're right. They're, uh, it's like you know a crisis. They they don't know how, how things will be unfolding. Uh, Neither do we. Uh, and one thing which we did not want to do is to give a false sense of know it uh, or like 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 uh, showing the clients that we knew uh, something uh, about the crisis that we didn't, because the people uh, really hate that the most during a crisis. So when we when we opened our doors, we stacked the banknotes in a visible way, but but still it was secure. So so uh, so that the risk of uh, theft was uh, was really minimal. Uh, I mean it was more visible, but but uh, but still protected nonetheless. You know, and I think you know I mean maybe exaggerating that feeling of stacking banknotes really gave people the feeling of uh, uh, trust. Like, I mean, you want to hunt your money. Of course, you're always well uh, uh, welcome to bring it back. But we will be here. You want a thousand, take a thousand. Take it all. I mean, and I think, you know, you know doing it this way really gave people, you know, a feeling of, uh, of trust. And, and, and I think that during, you know, a crisis, uh, maybe you can relate to it. And maybe now people in London can relate to it more. People really hate it the most when uh, when you try to outsmart them. People become people in uh, normal uh, times might politely resist you, you know, if you try to uh, outsmart them. But uh, d- during a crisis, when when almost everyone's trying to uh, outsmart you, and using the cheeky techniques, then people might come to hate you. And we didn't want to do that. So and uh, what uh, happened a few months down the line is that people like uh, actually the, the started to bring back their money back uh, to us and and people that had withdrawn from from other banks uh, that have used cheeky techniques to 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 convince them to keep money inside uh, ended up hating these banks and they have heard of the way we we approached it and then brought their money back to us because you know again that uh, brings me back to the point of uh, trust you know in a bank people need to trust you and i think trust is being built by always doing the right thing uh, and in this uh, case not trying to outsmart people was the right thing. And just one last note, Ruben. Think about it this way. In London, in the first few weeks of the pandemic, few or, or anyone else like did pile up some toilet paper amongst your other like you know essentials. If you had gone into a supermarket and saw that it had like you know an excess of toilet paper, and uh, they were just uh, actually you know what half of the store was redesigned to house toilet paper. Would that make you buy more or less? I, I think it would make you buy less. I think so as well. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, whereas, uh, whereas you know, if you keep the shortage really, really low and the uh, supply low and, you know, there's a lot of protein on it and you're just uh, allowed one box, 
people will uh, panic more, not less. And uh, and I think it did pay off in our uh, case. I think as well, just that feeling of stepping into the store and then you go to that shelf and just seeing it completely empty. Yeah. That the vision of the, the empty shelf, it has a trigger. Like there could be a shortage for the next week. Yes, yes. But if exactly. there's confidence there, with a bit more confidence. Just that point you said about some of the other banks, they were trying to employ things to keep the clients in it more of a tricky way. Like with those measures that I can help the bank in kind of the short term maybe, but in the long term, you lose clients, you lose trust, the exactly. drops, and it takes a long time to actually take that back up. Yeah. Like things from the past in the mid 2000s and all scandals and everything, and the stigma of those those scandals and stories, they stay, they stay attached to the name of the bank. Who at the top can change, but... Yeah, and I think like, you know, really uh, people will uh, remember what, uh, what you did in uh, the darkest of times more, more so than what uh, you did in your uh, best of times. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. This is more really your personal life and yeah, sure. family life as well. And I guess the stress of of being in charge of of a big part of the bank and of the crisis, all of the turmoil that place a stress on the home life. Because um, in the, the book you mentioned that your wife and yourself actually hit the wedding in the, the wartime, but then the stresses um, in terms of your parents and their travel arrangements and then afterwards and they're the shortened ceremony. Do all those things affect the vibe at home? Yeah, so I think it does very much so. Um, uh, and I think uh, with time things uh, become better. So maybe in the first year or so, I found it a lot more stressful. It was like, you know, a completely new world to me. And you maybe like my inclination in the first year, year or so was maybe not to almost uh, found it like wrong to like you know enjoy life for for what it uh, has but then with time you know and i think another just me i mean uh, people uh, around me you know as well uh, in uh, the country started to like you know embrace life more and you know i mean search for these decreasing but but still viable windows of positivity and normalcy so just like you're saying i did get married uh, during uh, the war, at the height of, of the war, so I decided to settle uh, down, you know, in the most unsettling of uh, times. And I think, you know, this is what, what people should do more during, you know, a crisis. Search for, you know, I mean, windows of normalcy and try to live uh, their lives as, as uh, normally as uh, they could. And, uh, and actually, we realized that people start to appreciate life uh, even more during a crisis and maybe appreciate the small pleasures much more than uh, they would maybe do during normal times when when they're taken for uh, granted so i mean maybe maybe if you or any of uh, the readers or listeners could you know i mean think think about the first two weeks of the, uh, the lockdown so i mean mundane things like you know going uh, going to, to a cafe sitting there ordering you know coffee which weren't you know i mean allowed and uh, that uh, period uh, uh, probably became a lot more cherished now 
and maybe maybe now when uh, when you're allowed to go back to a pub to a restaurant you find yourself starting to like you know appreciate it a lot more maybe than before because i mean losing something uh, even if it's uh, mundane you you maybe start to to uh, appreciate it more so so yes it was stressful but uh we did not really like you know with time you know we did, we did not let it engulf us the the idea was not to to let that feeling of um impending doom and very dominant the dominant negativity to to really wash away or all of our spirits because it was very tempting to do so i mean i mean it was so much easier to to fixate the negatives than you know try to to find positives and you know enjoy life but uh, i think with time people become a lot better at the experiences here the stress and the work life and all these type of things mm. But the outlets I I have here are sports and reading uh, and all that kind of stuff. So, for you personally, did you have means or an outlet just to take a break from work and have a thinking break? Yes, for me, really. I mean, the big change was was working from home. And what changed uh, for me as well, or what was different, uh, uh, was uh, my book uh, "Lessons from a War Zone" was really published in uh, beginning of April. So, like, really, really at the outset of the uh, the, the whole pandemic, and uh, and I found uh, myself like working from home actually gave me a lot more flexibility. So, so I saw it that way that, that this gave me flexibility to do talks, you know, just like this one we're we're having now with with really people all over the world uh, in a lot more flexible uh, manner so uh, i think like you know if there if there wasn't this big crisis these you know opportunities might be more visible uh, as in you know it would be a physical you know event but now this like gave me uh, an opportunity for uh, for the scope to be much bigger so just uh, last week i was interviewed by a spanish newspaper a couple of weeks ago and i'll uh, be doing a talk with a big canadian you know company in the next week so so i mean all these like you know opportunities wouldn't maybe have been possible in normal times and yeah and just you know working from home i mean of course uh, there are some some you know hardships with that but uh, but i really found it like an opportunity to do things you know at home which i maybe the past didn't know or wanted to do more of ideally but i couldn't do for many reasons so i'm doing a lot of uh, cooking I've actually stopped smoking a couple of months ago because I've been cooking a lot of healthy things, and you know, yeah. and some some have found a way to to like you know substitute things. So so I mean, uh, like you know, I mean, all in all, uh, I think the 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 idea is not to wait, you know, play the waiting game. I, I hear a lot of people in London telling me that they're just waiting for this to end, which which I don't think is a very healthy mindset because when you're waiting, it somehow implies a passive mindset where uh, where you're not doing you know anything now and you're just waiting uh, until something new happens and not really seeing this uh, as a phase in, uh, in which maybe you could you know I mean, explore certain opportunities exactly and and the other danger is i can pass up people assume that this will be finished within a month or two months mm. and then play the waiting game they yeah. guarantee that this be finished very very soon. yeah <laughs> yeah um, in the past if you check on what the country experiencing war um people thought that this would be 
it'd be finished within a few months and the, the years pass by eventually yeah yeah if your mindset is there then this is a great chance to improve your skills um and yeah, exactly explore the different ways of living now yeah, yeah exactly and we spoke the first time last week i said that the book was great because it taught you the principles of being in charge of a business and all the challenges and all of the concepts um, um, in textbook. But then it's been weaved into a very a captivating story because of the timing of the story. Um, um, it's fresh in the minds of, of people around the world. And it's a good way of explaining the concepts of being leader, etc. Thanks a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it was a part uh, business, part memoir uh, blend, uh, which was very unusual. Like uh, I was uh, told by my my agent and publisher that it's uh, like I mean, you rarely find books that talk about finance, and and then there's that you know memoir part. So hopefully, people will find it you know nice. And thanks a lot for finding it captivating. I'm honored by this. No, it's fine, it's fine. I, I have a feeling we had at the end of the worst of conflict and, and at the point we felt that the bank has maybe passed its biggest tests. The conflict is still there in the country. But the peak of the, uh, the powers of ISIS now has passed and there's a bit more chance of for the end soon. Uh, well, I left uh, the bank a few years ago, um, and I'm not really, you know, uh, familiar with the latest developments there a lot. But but I do know that, that that I mean maybe the challenges are different now. So 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 the war is less, it's uh, less of a physical like you know ongoing uh, active war now. There are other kinds of uh, challenges being faced, uh, and I think like you know there uh, there will always be challenges. I mean they come in different forms and shapes, and I. And I wouldn't be definite in saying that uh, the bank really passed its its worst uh, test. Like, uh, you know, even now things are difficult. And Syria currency is uh, actually a lot worse than than when uh, when it was when I was there. There's sanctions, increasing uh, sanctions, which uh, which are really hurting the people. A lot more people live live under the poverty line now. And uh, like, you know, of course, uh, there's uh, COVID-19, uh, which has uh, hurt. I mean, even the biggest, you know, economies, you know, in the world. So, so, so you can only, like, you know, imagine the 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 kind of impact it would uh, would have on much more volatile, the already somehow structurally weak countries like Syria. So, uh, so it is a very difficult situation. And I think, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it's uh, sad that you know this is the way, you know, it is. But what I can say is that you know, I mean, people need to uh, try to uh, prosper no matter what. And I just uh, hope that, you know, I mean, because they have uh, the, the uh, people there in the, the country, actually, as well, not just to, to the bank, that, you know, I mean, because they've somehow built up this pool of resilience over the years, that this would help them better uh, overcome the challenges that had. Did you experience mixed feelings at the point when you left the bank and though you came here? Because I guess it's um, a chance to escape the turmoil, etc. But because of the, of, of the progress that you made and 
and experiencing that the war alongside the colleagues and your teams there's a conflict there i guess right yeah yeah i mean um yeah just like you're saying it was a very difficult decision and uh and uh, I have uh, to say that, you know, since uh, my wife is uh, British, uh, I mean, I had the easy option of uh, flying into uh, London, which was really, I mean, a lucky, con- you know, situation for me. I mean, unlike most other Syrians that really didn't uh, have that, you know, plan B option. So I was really lucky in that sense. And yeah, I mean, like uh, Ruben, you know, p- people initially during lockdown, you know, found it difficult to stay home. That was the message back then, stay home, stay home, stay home. And I don't want to undermine that, you know, this, uh, it is a legitimate fear and a hardship. And I went that, you know, as well. And just just because I went through a war, it doesn't, I don't think in uh, uh, titles me or really like, you know, anyone to like, you know, undermine uh, any, any other hardship or fear, any other person's fear and hardship is legitimate. But I mean, if I can say from, from my perspective, yes, it was hard to, be forced to stay home but what was maybe a thousand times harder is being forced to leave home mm-hmm. so so uh to me the most difficult thing was you know making that decision to leave home because you know i mean even if there's a war uh, and even if like you know this was you know a crisis that was just becoming worse and worse and there was an actual threat to my life on a daily basis you know it's still uh, home at the end and and it's really really hard and I think, you know, it, uh, it takes a lot for, like, you know, someone to take that active decision to uh, decide to just leave home, get uprooted from where they are, and go over and start somewhere, somewhere, somewhere else. So, I mean, to me, uh, to me, I was really torn between these two worlds, you know, not wanting to leave home, because eventually it is home, no, no matter what happens. But, uh, but also, like, you know, I mean, being, being pragmatic about things and, you know, in the book, I say that one should uh, pursue opportunities uh, relentlessly and be strategic. And uh, after a few years, my wife and I decided that, you know, it made more strategic sense uh, for our family to be based outside. And uh, it was a very, very difficult choice. Of course, I mean, leaving my country, leaving, leaving my, my family, my uh, network, where I was valued uh, the most, leaving uh, the bank, you know, as well, where, where I think we did a lot of, you know, good things together leave the teams that I've worked with it was a very difficult thing but uh, but, no, but I think it was the right thing to do I mean uh, sometimes you you do need to take you know I mean actions that will be difficult but I think think it made most sense to me to me and my family in the in the long run um, and the last thing that I wanted to ask you was the vision you have for the future wow for the bank and the country itself. Yeah, well, uh, I think one should always uh, have a hope, no matter what, and you know, not you know, adopt a uh, defeatist uh, mindset. Like, I mean, prospects can be be gloomy, and you know, it is very you know tempting to like you know dominate on the to fixate sorry on the dominant negatives. Uh, but I but I would like to to think that you know I mean things should become better now now maybe this will take three five ten years 20 years maybe but but uh, but uh, at some point things should become better because i mean it went so i mean things went so down and uh, i mean it hit rock bottom that you know i mean almost 
there's no way else but uh, up. So, so I'm uh, hoping that things uh, become a lot uh, better. And uh, yeah, and I do have like a strong emotional uh, attachment to the uh, country, the people, the uh, hardships of uh, the people. Like the situation is really dire there. I mean, almost 80% of the uh, people live below poverty line. You had, you know, the uh, staggering figures of the human uh, cost and you know, houses uh, lost. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of work to be, to be, to be done in the future. Uh, and I would really like, my my hope would be that, you know, I would be, be able in my lifetime to, you know, to at least, you know, take an uh, you know, active part in rebuilding uh, things there. So, so, so that would be my hope that the suffering of the people ends because I think that, you know, I mean, they've, They've really been been through a lot of them and that you know things can turn a uh, positive and that uh, I can have an active part in really rebuilding the new Syria. Great, thank you very much. That's a lot, Ruben. Uh, so um, I just want to thank you again for sharing the stories and the insights as well because um, the perspective that you bring is different to uh, the narrative in of news at the moment mm. and in the past mm. so it was a great experience and the, the insights thanks a lot uh, ruben uh, a pleasure to talk to you and to be a, a guest in your uh, podcast thanks a lot thank you very much for listening to this conversation with louis aramani please share subscribe and look out for the next one <laughs>